On today's podcast, we'll be talking about family meals and the division of responsibility with our guest, Ellen Satter. Welcome to Feeding the Family with Dr. Kristen, where we help you navigate the challenges of feeding your family and learn about the role food plays in our health and relationships. Feeding and food relationships can be stressful, confusing, and even destructive. I'm Kristen Saxena, a pediatrician and mother of four who's been researching and sharing what I've learned about feeding for over 10 years. In this podcast, I'll share my experience and expertise to help our kids and ourselves with everyday survival tips for real parents. This podcast is about progress, not perfection. So let's get started. Welcome back to Feeding the Family with Dr. Kristen. I'm your host, Kristen Saxena. On today's episode, we're going to be talking about family meals and the division of responsibility in feeding. I'm very excited about our guest today, as she is the author of the division of responsibility. Ellen Satter is a world-renowned specialist and authority on feeding children. She's the author of several books on the subject, and actually one of the people who's information and teachings got me very interested in this subject in the first place. Thanks for joining us, Ellen. Well, it's just a pleasure, Kristen. It's good to see you. You too. So I think I've told this story before on our show, but I want to relate to everyone how I first came to be familiar with you, Ellen Satter, and the amazing work you do. So I, I will recall, there's not, not a lot of people I recall the first time I heard about them, but I definitely remember <laughs> the day, place um, I was when I first heard about you and your work. No oh, pressure. I feel honored. Wow, to have that kind of niche in your mind. <laughs> it's true. So I, I was in my second year of my pediatric residency. We do... Um, They would host these kind of lunch and learns for all of the residents. And, you know, you'd go there, just get some free lunch and sit down for a minute. And this particular day, they had a woman who, um, we were in Minnesota and she was a family practice doctor, but she was running um, a company where she kind of helped families who were having feeding problems with their children. And Uh she really introduced a lot of the things that I'm hoping to talk with you about on our show today, but these concepts of focusing on feeding dynamics within a family and with your child and ideas such as structure, um, the importance of family meals, and really this division of responsibility, which is really your brainchild. And I just remember it hit me at such a important, you know, sometimes the right information just comes to you at the very right time. So I'm in the second year of my pediatric residency where we're doing, um, seeing kids in the hospital, but also doing clinic. And in clinic, as you know, because you are a dietitian and therapist, but in clinic, nearly every family that you encounter has some question or concern about the way their child is eating. It was almost universal. And at the same time, um, at the very beginning of my second year of of residency, I also had my first child. So I was also embarking in this adventure of feeding my own child. Mm-hmm. And I, mm-hmm. I was at this crux because I think before I had my own child, I felt like, you know, I'm a doctor. I have all this training. I know exactly what your child's supposed to be eating, how they're supposed to be doing it. Why can't you just do this? Then I get a real child that I'm responsible for. <laughs> and it's like, how is anyone supposed to do this? These kind of recommendations of what you should be doing, what you should be eating, they don't 
they don't work. They don't translate to real life. And it's very stressful as a parent. So it just hit me. And I was like, this is genius. I need to know more. And from that point on, you know, since like 2009, I've secretly been fangirl. Of Ellen Satter. That's, that's great. And so, yes, and we have had associations over the years and, and worked on some projects. I've taken an interest in you and your work. But, you know, it's uh, you, uh, that's quite he- your story is quite healing for me because one of the things I did last year that I didn't feel really great about was I gave a lecture to about 80 really exhausted pediatric residents somewhere in California. And I just felt like what I had to say just dropped like a bomb because the poor guys, you know, the poor people, uh, they listened to the lecture and there were no questions. You know, it was kind of like dropping it into a deep well. And I was left wondering, well, these poor people, are they, were they, <laughs> were they too tired to hear anything? <laughs> yes. The answer to that is probably yes. I would not take that personally. <laughs> Um, because I, I would say too, you know, I've spoken, um, since with other people from my residency group and they also, I mean, we all remember people are familiar with, you know, the sadder feeding dynamics model, division of responsibility. And honestly, I relate that all. I'm not sure that that infant, you know, that they would know that if we didn't have that opportunity. So yes, no, you know, maybe it didn't feel like at the moment, but my guess, I would find it hard to believe that you didn't very positively influence some of those young Uh, doctors at that time. You always hope for at least one person who resonates your message. So you give me hope. Well, know that in the world there was at least one. (laughs) (laughs) But that's what I'm most excited to have you talk about. So two of the things that you're most well known for are um, what's known as the Satter Feeding Dynamics Model and Satter Eating Competence Model. So Mm -hmm. probably they kind of feed into each other. Ha ha, no pun intended. But they, um, but probably what's most relevant to our listeners who are mostly parents um, would be your feeding dynamics model. Can you please Mm -hmm. walk us through what that is and why it's important? Well, you talked about hearing in your residency about the Saturn division of responsibility and feeding. And by the way, I put my name on everything because I want to protect it. You know, there's always somebody who comes along who has a better idea and then they spoil what I what my I intended in the first place. So the division of responsibility uh, says that uh, for children when you know who are toddlers and older kids who've grown up to the family table, that parents are responsible for the what when and where of feeding, and that children are responsible for the how much and whether of eating. Um, And that, um, which, you know, uh, probably as a young parent, both encouraged you about knowing what exactly was what it was that you had to do, and also lightened up your chores, because there are certain things that you just have no control over and you really don't have to try to make them happen. And so, yes, the division of responsibility has been, uh, it has been very freeing. And the thing is, it's out there. I mean, that 
people know about it. I mean, some of the major agencies, professional practice groups, they cite the division of responsibility. But unfortunately, they cite it and they spoil it. The American Dietetic Association parrots it, and then they say, oh, and it has to be healthy food. It has to be low-fat food. And and the American Academy of Pediatrics parrots it, and it says, oh, your child has to be, can't be above the 95th percentile or even the 85th percentile. So there's always someone wandering in and sort of spoiling it. Um, Or, you know, practitioners will say, well, do the division of responsibility and don't worry if your child eats or not. And, you know, sooner or later, he's going to get hungry and he's going to eat. But, you know, some children, for whatever reason, have a lot of trouble eating. They might have, uh, you know, really sensitive to taste or textures. They might react strongly to unfamiliar food, or they might have a history of food struggles with their parents. I mean, that the parents have been concerned from little on about their eating and have quite naturally gotten kind of pushy about it, whereupon the child reacts and, and you get into this kind of a relationship. Are, are they going to see me on video or do I need to explain what I'm doing when I do that? <laughs> do I need to there say? There is video, yeah. But there is video. Okay. It'll be both audio and video. Okay. So when they're butting heads anyway. Um, and so, you know, there are nuances that go along with the division of responsibility that are really important. Uh, for instance, a, a critical nuance is how do you go about planning a family meal so everybody can be successful with the meal, not only the children, but the grown-ups who don't exactly like everything that's put before them, or the poor cook who feels like she has to please everybody with every dinner every night. Um, you know, it's, and so how, how do you navigate that? Mm-hmm. And I, I like to talk about being considerate without catering with meal planning. Yes, which we means use the that, line at home. Not every meal is going to be your favorite. That's what my, because I have four kids. And so that's always my line is. That's good for you. <laughs> well, I, uh, let me edit that a bit, Kristen, because I would say not every food at every meal is going to be your favorite, but there's always going to be something that you generally eat. Mm-hmm. So if all else fails, there's butter or there's bread, there's rice, there's canned peaches, you know, there's going to be something on the table that you can eat. And so then when you plan your meals, being considerate means that those one or two, uh, my readers on Facebook, when they're not mad at me, call those safe <laughs> foods. Um, and uh, and they talk about how their children need to see these foods that make them feel safe mm-hmm. when they come to the table. Uh, along with the unfamiliar foods, you know, you, you as the parent are entitled to plan menus around what you like and what you eat and what you feel good cooking. Yeah. And your kids are learning, growing up to learn to eat those foods. And so those, that really prepares provides the backbone for the meals, but then there also has to be something there that makes them feel safe, even if it represents some pretty weird menu planning, it it needs to be there. So one question I have is, I mean, when, when I first learned about it and when you kind of hear about it, it sounds very simple, very straightforward. But at the same time, 
it seems to be counter to the way a lot of us naturally approach feeding kids and maybe the way that a lot of us were fed growing up. So not necessarily the way it ends up being done most of the time. So a question I have is how, how did you even come up with this and how did you figure out that it worked? Well, I came up with it one time when my back was to the wall in a counseling session. Um, one of the, I worked as an outpatient dietitian in a, in a group medical practice for about the first 15 years of my career. And then I became, uh, went back to school and became a psychotherapist. So I, I kind of worked at it from both ends, a family therapist. But I was in a counseling session with this mom and her eight-year-old son. And it was sort of back in the days when we had satellite clinics and hard copy records. And so the record hadn't arrived. So the only thing I had on these two was weight issues. And and the kid was, you know, kind of chubby and 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 I was I was trying to work my way out of telling kids, telling parents what their kids should eat, although I hadn't quite gotten all the way out. And so I was uh, I was sort of hammering away about having meals and having protein and milk and bread. And she she said, "Oh, we're already we're already doing that. We're doing that." And I said, "All right, well that's good." And then I'd had some other suggestion that I made, and and she was getting madder and madder, and the kid was just sliding down in his chair. I mean, he oh, poor little sweetie, he just looked miserable. And uh, I'm doing that. And finally, she said, you know, you haven't told me anything I don't already know. And look at him. He's too fat. And his brother at home is too thin. And what am I supposed to do? Am I supposed to, how am I going to get him to eat less than the other one to eat more? And I thought, holy smoke, she's got me there. (laughs) 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 What goes through your head? Uh, And so I said, um, well, you know, I don't think it's your job to get uh, get him, and I called him by name, to eat less, and the, his brother to eat more. I think it's you're doing your job. I mean, you're getting the food on the table. You are seeing to it that they get regular meals and snacks, and then after that, it's up to them how much they eat and how they grow. Oh, she was madder than ever. She didn't like it. And I thought, holy smokes, can that be right? <laughs> and the little, but it, the little boy sat up and started to smile. You can always tell by the kid by how a kid reacts if you're on the right track. Mm-hmm. And he he was he was like transformed. He he finally heard something that sounded okay to him. Mm-hmm. And so I let it stand. It was the only worthwhile thing I'd said all day. So <laughs> and then I. <laughs> I got started thinking about it, and I thought, is this is true? I mean, can we really do that? Is that right? It sounds pretty daring. And then, you know, I tested it out, and, I, and then I got started reading some of the literature, and sure enough, you know, the research literature supported it. And so, it's uh, some of my best insights I've blundered into. I, I you know, you, right? you're, you're under stress, and suddenly your mind starts to work in a different way. And so, yeah, I remember, talk about moments you remember. <laughs> right? Well, so, okay, so you have this sort of, like, aha moment a little bit in in your clinic with this 
family and yes. you start to kind of read about it and reinforce this idea, maybe start having success with other um, families that you're working with. But then you've gone on to do like a whole slew of your own sort of studies and research to validate yeah. this. Can you tell us mm-hmm. a little bit about what that entails and what you've found for families yeah. that follow the division of responsibility? By all means. Yes. Um, well, and over the years, I've accumulated a lot of data from research that other people have said have done that supports the model, uh, supports the intervention, the division of responsibility and feeding. And then starting about 10 years ago, in fact, it was around 2010, that we started testing uh, an inventory, a paper and pencil inventory, to assess whether or not parents are following the division of responsibility and feeding. And this was a long and agonizing process that, unless you beg me, I won't tell you about. <laughs> but it just took so long because it was so excruciatingly difficult to get at questions to ask them that really captured what they were doing and to capture a shared understanding. And um, and it, it's interactive. I mean, when I did the eating competence inventory, it was easy. I developed it in my practice. We tested it. It was pretty good. And it was just really easy because it was one person in relationship to the food. But with SDOR, it's two people in relationship to each other and the food. So it's so interactive. So hard to get at the items. And then we tested it. We had people fill out the questionnaire and then we videoed them to see if they were really doing what they said they were doing on Mm -hmm. the questionnaire. And then we uh, finally validated it against a bunch of other questionnaires. And what we ended up with actually works. It actually determines whether parents are following the division of responsibility. And we do find that that, um, when they do, children have lower nutritional risk. Not a word about food, not a word about what they eat, but that children have lower nutritional risk. And like, can you define for somebody that maybe doesn't understand what, what do you mean lower nutrition? Well, it means that children are pretty, have a pretty good chance of eating a nutritionally adequate diet. Mm -hmm. That if you attend to the mechanics of getting a meal on the table and, you know, being trusting and accepting with your child that he will sooner or later get around to eating what you provide, he's going to have a pretty good diet, even though on any one day, it's not going to look all that impressive. And what what were the specific kind of like outcomes that you guys measured then um, saying, okay, so for people that follow the division of responsibility, here's what we're finding are more or less likely in those children in terms of outcomes? Uh, well, you see, we haven't gotten there yet. Now we have the tool, and so we have the test, and so now we can start giving SDOR two to six years to big populations of parents and children and seeing, okay, when parents follow SDOR, what happens with growth? Do mm-hmm. children tend to grow consistently or do they get too fat or do they get too thin? We, you know, we, we're thinking that they're going to grow great, but mm-hmm. we haven't really test our, uh, tested that. Our clinical experience supports that. 
But until you really do a research trial, you can't be sure that what you think is happening is really happening. Um, we have good grounding for a nutritionally adequate diet, but you know we could do SCOR in in WIC and find out if um, parents who feed following SDOR have children who have a low, lower likelihood of having iron deficiency anemia. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, there now we're ready to start asking the questions. And do you um, do clinic- measures? Oh, sorry, but do you do measures uh, of like variety within the diet, or? Um, sure, that's one of the outcomes mm-hmm. that we can measure. But, mm-hmm. you know, and that's part of nutritional risk. And when you, when you say a child's nutritional status is good, that means that that child is eating a variety of food and getting the different fruits and vegetables and milk and meat and, or protein foods and, and uh, grains that he needs. And so it means that we know already that children are doing pretty well nutritionally. And we know something about the parents, too, and that is when the parents follow a division of responsibility and feeding, that they're more likely to be eating competent, that they're doing a better, they're, they're, for the most part, they're feeling positive and relaxed and are, are good about feeding themselves faithfully. They have regular meals with food they enjoy and they let themselves eat as much as they enjoy eating. Yeah, I thought that was what was interesting. And we can talk about that a little bit more too. But one of the things was that not only did it make the feeding experience, if you will, or eating experience better for the child, but it also, as part of this dynamic, even made it a better experience for the parent. Absolutely. Um, Well, yes. Yes. And you know, the, um, I'm impressed. You seem like you're reading the literature. Good for you. Um, <laughs> well, once in a while, I, I get into this stuff. <laughs> well, it's great. Uh, I like these kinds of conversations. And yes, if you recall, the parents who scored high on SDOR and were eating competent had lower stress mm-hmm. uh, overall. They slept better. And they they tended to have, and the people, parents who were, uh, you know, the uh, context part, their ability to plan, to have regular meals correlated with um, their psychosocial indicators overall. I mean, their high esteem, their self-esteem was better, their anxiety was lower, they just felt better overall you know and as a parent isn't that all you're looking for you're like I just want to be able to relax maybe sleep well feel happy (laughs) and this is it you You figured it out (laughs) yeah they're just let me tell you how to eat and your life will be fine that's right (laughs) but of course you know we can't even say that in today's world because it gets spoiled because it uh, because what it gets turned to you know we've been hammered on for so long about eating you have to eat the right food and you mm-hmm. have to eat the right amounts and you can't eat fat and you can't eat this and that. And um, and what did I say just a minute ago? Let me help you with your eating. Your life will turn out fine. Well, most people transpose that into eat your fruits and vegetables and, yeah. you know, drink skim milk. And, and so it's, it's, you have to be really careful about the me- messages you use and mm-hmm. how people decode the message because when you talk about food, almost anything you say sort of goes down as a scolding on the other end. And, and uh, that's not what I want. I want people to f- be freed up, to be joyful. And 
yeah. rewarded and feel confident with eating and feeding. Well, related to that, and forgive me if I get the quote or the way that you generally say it a little off, but what I always think about when I think about your model and sort of your whole philosophy is that the how of feeding is much more important than the what. And the great part is, is like you said, I think a lot of us come in with our concern being at the what, like they're eating Uh too much of this, not enough of this. What should we be Uh feeding? Uh And we're guilty with that through, you know, the media and society and also within, you know, the medical community, a lot of the dietitian community, that is often the focus. But what you said, you know, the how is more important than the what, but ironically or wonderfully the the what seems to improve naturally when you figure out the how so can you kind of elaborate on that a little bit well yes you're quite right the the how really brings the what along there's no two ways about it well um let's talk about adults in relationship to their eating Mm -hmm. um Yesterday, I gave a lecture about eating confidence in context. And so just let me circle back a little bit and tell you what eating confidence is. And it's it's adults in relationship to their own eating. And people are eating confident when they feel good about eating. You know, their attitudes are positive, that they take an interest in food and are inclined to experiment with unfamiliar food, which means they increase their variety over time. But that they don't have to. Um, they uh, eat as much as they're hungry for. They depend on their hunger and appetite satiety to guide how much they eat. And did I say they have regular meals and snacks? Mm-mm. I did. Okay, so that's four. Uh, and of course, it's the context kind of holds the whole thing up. Um, and so um, adults say we have a, a grown up who comes in to see us and they say, Oh man, my eating is just a mess. I don't know where to start. You know, I just, I don't know what to eat. I feel, I try to eat fruits and I feel so bad. You know, so, huh? <laughs> you recognize it all. Yep. You know, it's just, and so how, how to get started. And then I, I have a handout that I call the joy of eating and it has three points on it one page and it says feed yourself faithfully um have meals and snacks made up of food you generally eat food you enjoy you know food that you can reliably get on the table you know uh, be good to yourself with food so feed yourself faithfully give yourself permission to eat you can eat as, and that's strong permission, unflinching permission. It's like eat as much as you're hungry for, eat the food you enjoy, eat until you feel satisfied. Don't eat it if it doesn't taste good to you, you know. And so mm-hmm. you pair the two. And so people, you know, if all goes well, people say, well, I can do that. And they go out and they have their meals and they say, well, instead of just throwing the pizza on the counter and having everybody come and get it when they get around to it, why don't we all sit down together and eat the pizza? And uh, what what should we have with it? Well, nothing or maybe a can of peaches or, you know, so they have the structure. Feed yourself faithfully. Mm-hmm. Feed your family faithfully. Mean you mean like with a structure on like a regular, yep, mm-hmm. on like a regular yep. time frame. But you know, I'm and I'm I'm real deliberate in my language because if I say structural, they'll think, 
vision, <laughs> right? Deer in the headlights. Yeah. Yeah. And and if I say discipline, uh, they're going to say, you know, and I, that's, you know, that really is discipline because you're getting the meal on. But if you say discipline, people are going to think negative, negative discipline, and that takes all the fun out of it. Yeah. So I feed yourself faithfully. Give yourself permission to eat, and that is strong permission to eat, um, that it's all right to eat that mm-hmm. and that and that and that. Um, I just need to pay attention. So, I, I mean, as you describe this, I have to like ask the question, like what percentage of adults in real life are, would actually be considered eating competent because it doesn't seem like what I'm used to, you know, seeing within the community of people that I hang around with. And is this something that exists mostly on a spectrum? Um, You know, am I like pretty eating competent, very eating competent? Well, uh, (laughs) we have the eating competence inventory. Mm -hmm. And I um, clinically, I came up with the cutoff being about 32 so above you're competent, below you're not. It's kind of arbitrary, but and it, it really is a continuum. But um, actually, about half half of the people are eating competent. That's pretty good because what I think of is, um, you know, and I've we've probably talked about this and we talk about it on our show a lot, is that a lot of the struggles we have with feeding our kids, um, adhering to things like the division of responsibility. A lot of it stems from our anxiety as parents, like our own anxiety about food um, and maybe our own lack of eating competence, I would think. Um, Mm -hmm. I agree. So then that kind of to me begs the question, if as I'm hearing all these things or like I always say this, like and I'm hearing all these things, you're telling me, you know, in order to be or you think in order to be good at this uh, feeding dynamics and division of responsibility, I have to be myself a competent eater. Great. Like now I have to fix me too. I was just trying to get my kid to eat more than five foods, right? So you're like, (laughs) ugh. So what do you do? What advice do you give to parents that are hearing this and they're thinking, okay, I don't know that I'm the most eating competent person hearing this description, but uh-huh, it seems uh-huh. very stressful to have to wait until I fix myself to think that I'll be able to be good at feeding my family. Well, once in a while, that is the case. If people, um, keeping in mind that half of people test competent with their eating, which I find rather surprising too, because all you hear is people moaning and groaning about their food. Um, and so it <laughs> seems a little contradictory. But um, uh, I like to think about it from the other way around. So say a parent comes in and says, you know, my child is just such a picky eater. Mm-hmm. Uh, he'll only eat two or three foods. Yeah, which we hear, I'm, I hear so often, right? I mean, that's mm-hmm. like one of the most common concerns of parents is mm-hmm, just this mm-hmm. short list of foods that their child seems to willingly eat. Right, right. Well, and, and a lot depends on the age of the child, because if you have a toddler, it's absolutely normal for them to be a picky eater. Mm-hmm. In fact, it'd be, it's abnormal when they're not. And once in a while you have a child, a toddler, he'll eat almost everything, but 
most most generally they don't. And if the parent gets to start catering to that kid, short order cooking mm-hmm. or pressuring that child to eat, then chances are by the time the child is preschooler, he's going to have an even shorter list of foods that he eats. Mm-hmm. So it starts out normal kid behavior. And if the parents become over responsible at trying to address it, then it gets worse. And so um, really the solution is to have a division of responsibility in feeding and to be considerate without catering with meal planning and to lighten up on the kid and don't put pressure on him or try to trick or reward or coerce or persuade him in any way to eat, not even to do elaborate modeling. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, (laughs) because I always think too, um, you know, as you say that a lot of that comes from this anxiety. And I I always Mm -hmm. tell parents that comes from a place of love. And this is my own kind of made up theory, but I always think of everything in terms of like cavemen, right? And so if you were a caveman and you saw your little cave baby not eating when the food was available, that would be very stressful to you because Mm -hmm. there wasn't, you know, a grocery store down the street. You couldn't get Walmart to deliver you something. You know, now we Mm -hmm. have food Mm -hmm. everywhere. But at the time it would be like, you need to eat this boar we've caught because I don't know when we're going to eat next, right? So Mm -hmm. I feel Mm -hmm. like there's something in our caveman brain that that comes from a place of love and caring. And so you want to figure out what I need to do to put food into this child. But Mm -hmm. that's not the Mm -hmm. world that we live in. Instead, you have to kind of think of the long play. So we Mm -hmm. end up, I mean, the things you see, like you said, parents become short order cooks because they just want their child to eat. Um, Mm -hmm. I see a lot of people that really like, think of milk as this, especially for younger kids. Well, at least they'll drink their milk. So then that kid's drinking, you know, a gallon of milk every two days and not eating anything else. And that comes with its own health problems. Um, Or we see the coercive type uh, behaviors. Or nowadays, I think the one I'll see a lot is kids, um, you know, eating parked in front of like an iPad kind of with this distracted, if if you don't pay attention, I'll be able to kind of shovel some extra bites into your yeah, your mouth. Yeah. And I think it's easy to, when you really sit down and think about it, think of how these are sort of reinforcing things that are negative. And then as adults are all the things we think we're trying to correct about ourselves in terms of, you know, mindless eating and, um, you know, eating beyond when we're hungry or full, all of those things. It's easy if you really sit and think about it, how we're how we're creating those behaviors. But I think Mm -hmm. it comes from a place of parental anxiety, but a place really, like I like to say, don't feel bad about it because I I think ultimately it comes from this like inherent love and care you have for your child. Just You have to be able to think beyond today's dinner and say, what behaviors are we creating and reinforcing? Exactly. In the future, which brings us back, your your original question was about eating confidence, mm-hmm. and what we're discussing is how the parents' eating confidence uh, impinges on this whole process of bringing a child back from being such a, you know, um, um, at the extreme of being a picky eater, um, and so the child then, so the you give the the uh, 
recommendation, that division of responsibility, regular family meals. And so then at this, this point, then the parent starts it to ask the very questions you're talking about, Kristen, which is, oh my goodness, does this mean I have to have a broiled chicken breast and broccoli and I have to put meals on the table and what am I supposed to have at mealtime? So you start to impinge on that sort of uh, the parents' negatives, their mm-hmm. anxiety about what they're having, um, their anxiety about um, whether they're eating a variety of food. Once in a while, you get a parent who's pretty picky, who's been bullied by his parent about <laughs> eating more vegetables than he really is. And so, uh, you and so as you go along, you sort of address those things with the parent. And, um, you know, there, there was a nice study, you talk about Minneapolis, it came out of the uh, Diane Newmark Stainer's laboratory in uh, St. Paul, University of Minnesota, uh, where they did uh, uh, focus interviews with parents of, uh, you know, single parents, two-parent families, and so on, and found out what it was that uh, they families were doing for meals and what their patterns were, what the barriers were. And um, one of the barriers was a child who was picky. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, not surprising. But the point that I wanted to make about that study is that it was consistent pattern that when, um, w- with respect to family meals, that when uh, parents made a healthy meal, you know, whatever that is, healthy, home-cooked, mm-hmm. they sat down together and ate it. But if they have, happened to have a meal they brought in from the fast food restaurant or they, home, you know, home-delivered or some food that they didn't consider healthy, mm-hmm. everybody went off and ate on their own. Hmm. So the attitude was the only food that was that you worthy of being dignified with the mealtime ritual was healthy home cook. Well, is that or is that not a pretty undermining attitude? Right. Well, do I you mean, think that was just because the cook was like, what? I made this. You're going to sit down with me? <laughs> or, you know, or is it well, just we'll a sense more of casual? Yeah. <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's all or nothing attitude. You mm-hmm. know, it, if we're going to have a meal and it's going to be so nice and we're going to have healthy home cooked food. Um, and, uh, and uh, you know, that requires getting wrapped up to a pretty high energy level to pull all that off. Yeah. Whereas if the cook says, well, we're going to have pizza tonight. Let's set the table. What? You know, um, get the pizza in the middle of the table and, you know, that's a meal. Yeah. And everybody can sit down and enjoy that together. In fact, my definition of a meal is when everybody sits down together and shares the same food. I love it. Period. Yeah. That's it. I, I love that. And I think that number one, I love what you said about this all or nothing mentality. And I think that's something mm-hmm. that a lot of us, a lot of parents get trapped in where you feel like, well, if I can't do this 100% wonderfully, it's just not mm-hmm. for me. This doesn't work for right. us. And this is not that. And that's not the kind of philosophy you carry. And that's not the kind of ideas that to promote. And really, it's all about meeting you where you are and finding out what works for your family and sort of mm-hmm. incrementally building on successes, I would exactly. say. So yep. I want to talk about specifically. Wait, uh, wait. Oh, sorry. Wait. We haven't <laughs> talked about the pet parents failing to like vegetables because this oh. is, you know, the, now we have the child coming to the table. Parent has lightened up about what has to be on the table, but 
vegetables. What are we going to do about the vegetables? <laughs> so the parent doesn't like vegetables. They don't, don't enjoy vegetables. So how are they going to get their kid to eat vegetables if they don't enjoy vegetables? Well, they're not. But they are going to raise a child who is not phobic about vegetables. You know, there might be one or two vegetables that shows up on the table. The parent eats it and enjoys it. And children do tend to eat vegetables that their parents enjoy. Mm -hmm. Enjoy, not eat, not fake it and eat, but mm -hmm. enjoy. Um, and so, uh, but, you know, when the, if the child then feeling sort of neutral about vegetables goes out into the world, he's going to be introduced to vegetables by other people who enjoy them. And over time, he'll learn to like them. Do you suggest so, to put those kind, like, it is harder for me to relate to because I do love I love food and, you know, that's part of the other reason that like I'm, I'm a person who likes a good variety. And so it's not mm -hmm. something I think about a lot in terms of, you know, I don't that's not something that comes into my mind a lot. But I love that point. And so if you are a person who kind of grew up and now are like, you know, I'm not a person that likes a lot of vegetables, but my wish for my child is to be less picky than I am. And so do you suggest that they sort of introduce some foods that they themselves may not you know, like a, it's a side dish. So I think, well, as you say, you know, it's all about putting it on the table. You you decide what we're going to eat, but it doesn't necessarily mean that all of us have to eat every component mm -hmm. of the mm -hmm. meal. So let's just say, you know, I just don't like vegetables, but maybe making it as a side dish because perhaps the rest of my family will enjoy it. And just because I don't like it doesn't mean it right. can't be on the table. So the question is, if I don't like vegetables and I'm the cook, how are vegetables going to find their way onto my table? Mm -hmm. And so um, maybe part of being considerate without catering is I make vegetables for the other people in the family. You know, mm -hmm. I might have the non-cook part of the partnership might like, you know, enjoy vegetables or, you know, kids learn about vegetables in school and they come home and they say, hey, let's try broccoli. And you think, oh, my broccoli. <laughs> and, and, and so what's a parent to do? Well, you say, well, you know, I really haven't enjoyed broccoli in the past, but by golly, if you're interested in it, let's get some and let's see about cooking it and I'll sure try it with you. Um, and so let's let's see what we find out about broccoli. And so, you know, the parent really doesn't have to fake it in order to bring their child along. They just need to preserve attitudes. Now, one more point, and then I'll let you go on to what it was that you wanted to raise. And that is how much. Mm -hmm. um, division of responsibility, how much the child needs. And we have a child who's, you know, you know whose health care provider has read the Riot Act with the parent because the child's too fat and the child's not supposed to eat too much and, you know, not supposed to have, you know, certainly not ice cream. And, you know, so, um, and so, but the division of responsibility and feeding says have a variety of food, be considerate without catering, and include high fat, high sugar food often enough so it wears out their specialness, you know. Mm -hmm. Like so it doesn't kid, become a forbidden food or. Exactly, mm -hmm. exactly. So here's the parent, a dieter. Mm -hmm. Look Very at that. If anybody that's watching the videos just saw that like judgy face. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so the parent is a dieter and they're they're really restrictive with their own eating. 
And uh, and so here they do a division of responsibility, let the child eat as much as they want. And so at first, uh, the child begin, eats like there's no tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and if the parent can keep their nerve, over time, that's going to settle down. But even then, here's the parent who has no sense of their, their own internal ability to internally re- regulate their, their own food intake, trying to do for their child what they can't do for themselves. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of where the rubber hits the road with the eating competence. I mean, that's that's the big challenge for parents is when they don't uh, internally regulate, being able to uh, be trusting, accepting with their child's ability to internally regulate because they simply don't have any frame of reference. Yeah, I think that was a key word you said was trust. Um, uh And I think you've said that before. And it can be, I mean, even knowing all this, there's something that it's still sometimes difficult on the day to day, just as your automatic response. Sometimes yeah. I think it's difficult to have that trust. But, you know, I think through your work and what you've found, it's, the, it's that trust that allows that child to maintain that um like sort of intuitive nature or regain and then maintain that intuitive nature in terms of how much they really need to eat, how much their mm-hmm. body needs mm-hmm. to eat at the time and, you know, what food it needs. Because, you know, I, I really do think, you know, I think that's something that kids and babies, they're sort of born with this drive and research would show that, you know, if, if left alone, I think you kind of talked about this too, kids will eat a variety of food over time, not necessarily in one day. It may look Mm -hmm. like today all we ate was goldfish crackers. I feel like that's all you eat. But sort of left to their own devices, they will generally naturally um, or they will change how much they eat based on their activity level and their growth at the time. And they will eat a variety of foods self-selected if sort of left alone to do that. Uh, Self-selected within the context of the food that the parent is making available to them. Mm -hmm. So they're not going to eat only an all goldfish because the parent isn't offering them all the time. Mm -hmm. And so, and if the child, um, well, it sort of brings us back to starving the child into submission. I started that thread earlier and we got off to something else. And I said, no, you're not going to do division of responsibility and starve the child into submission because you're going to be considerate without catering Mm -hmm. with your menu planning. So even the extraordinarily picky child you know, bordering on food phobic child is going to see something that they can eat. And so mm-hmm. they don't, they don't starve. They can eat. And the parent doesn't have to starve them. The parent can feed them without short order cooking for them. And I think then so, that, that goes like into the idea where it, it saves you from this short order cook situation. And I think most parents, when you hear that, you go fine. So like if I give bread at every meal, all he's going to eat is bread, right? Like that's the answer that you would generally get. But I think that the the idea is that those meals are still counting as what we talk about a lot, like exposures. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it may not seem like it that day or even that week, but those continued exposures to different and varied foods kind of accumulate and create a familiarity and a comfort level that eventually translates to 
trying and often even enjoying yep. a wider variety of food. Yeah. It's just being well, patient. Well, you're exactly <laughs> right. And then there's always, there's also the principle of sensory specific satiety, which applies to both children and adults. And what it means is that we tire of even our favorite foods and seek alternatives. So yes. kids tire of their favorite foods. You know, yes, he's going to eat only bread for a week or two weeks mm -hmm. uh, or even longer. But eventually he's going to get tired of bread and start looking around and seeing what else is available and eating something different. I think every um, parent with a Costco membership knows exactly what you're talking about because <laughs> I feel like my kids love something and I go out and I buy like, a hundred of them. And then I'm left with like 85 of them when they've decided uh -huh. they're tired of it. And it's like, now what, what are we going to do with this? <laughs> and it's, it's never gradual, is it, Kristen? No. I mean, it's night and day. It's like, Eat, 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 cold turkey. And, yep, and then we're over it. <laughs> it's frustrating. Um, yeah. So one thing I definitely want to make sure we include in this conversation is family meals. I'm, you know, obsessed with family meals might be an understatement. Um, but just because I feel like there's so many benefits of the family meal mm -hmm. that I just love to promote and celebrate it. But I also love the way that the division of responsibility and your approach to feeding children fits in to make the family meal such a more joyous and peaceful, pleasant experience for families. So can mm -hmm. you talk a little mm -hmm. bit about the benefit of family meals as you see it and how this division of responsibility can be helpful within okay. that context? Well, um, before we started recording, I told you that my um, my motive for today, my underlying uh, thing that I want to get across to parents is that not to freak them out mm -hmm. about doing their feeding jobs and not to make them feel like getting a meal on the table is one more thing they're failing at. You know that parents always have their bags packed for a guilt trip and I don't <laughs> want to contribute to that because it's, it's not helpful and it's not necessary. Um, Parents want to have family meals. They know meals are important. They don't need to be motivated to have meals. And so really the question becomes, how can we think about meals so they are going to be achievable enough and rewarding enough that we're going to be able to have them. Mm -hmm. That, you know, we can have meals and we keep on having meals. I mean, and that's that's 18 years of meals. I mean, that's no small item. Yeah. Uh, it kind of boggles the mind when you think about it, uh, doesn't it? Although I, I haven't had kids in the house now for about 30 years and I'm still eating meals. So what can I say? <laughs> right. <a> idea. <laughs> but um, yeah. So can you talk a little bit though about, because we have talked a lot about the benefits because I agree. I think people want to do it and mm -hmm. they see that they are beneficial. I don't. I think when you really do the research, sometimes the benefits are even more than you realized. Because I thought, yeah. "Wow, this is really astounding." Um, mm -hmm. They're more far-reaching, but I think at the same time, uh, society doesn't really privilege the family meal right now um, in mm -hmm. terms of 
people being overscheduled, um, people are in various groups and activities and things like that were that. And then the idea that if we're preparing separate meals, sometimes it's more pleasant or easy for, you know, kids to eat at one time and parents to eat at another time. So there are a lot of things that can work against it and make, Mm -hmm. make it so that it just doesn't happen on a regular basis or maybe even Mm -hmm. at all in Mm -hmm. some families. So what I love is that I feel that helping people to understand the benefits to maybe help them decide that it is important to prioritize this, but also mm-hmm. then what are the strategies? Because I mean, a, a stressful family meal doesn't really carry those benefits that we're mm-hmm. talking about. Mm-hmm. And so that's where I love to see things like structure and feeding and this division of responsibility are really the tools that can help to make it a, a more peaceful, pleasant experience mm-hmm. for everyone. Mm-hmm. Right. And, you know, uh, pleasant family meals are really nuanced. I said a minute ago that uh, those Minnesota parents said that one of the things that got in the way of their family meals was a picky kid. Mm-hmm. And and so and that goes to parents' attitude, the attitude that the child should be should eat everything, some of everything that's on the table. So and the way to address that is to adjust the parents' expectations mm-hmm. about the child's eating. And in fact, a lot of the nuances go in that direction. You know, parents complain that their child uh, won't stay at the table, you know, that fif- five minutes and they want to be gone. Mm-hmm. Well, if it's a toddler, then five minutes is a pretty good um, duration. A to- hungry toddler will come to the table and they'll be businesslike and they'll eat until they're full and then before long they're ready to go. Mm-hmm. And if you don't want them to spoil the meal for everybody, you better let them go because mm-hmm. after that, they're going to horse around and do stuff that irritates the parents and you know so mm-hmm. you let them go and then you teach them to play quietly so the rest of the people at the play, uh, table can enjoy their meal um and so you know those are the uh, you know the couple of things that go on that that parents um uh, understanding normal child eating behavior yes. is w- one of the things that really uh, supports parents in being able to have family meals. Yeah, at each and, sort of developmental stage, like understanding, mm-hmm. like you had talked right. about, like picky eating is very developmentally normal for a toddler. Exactly. Um, and exactly. maybe sometimes eating what can, I have a 13 year old son uh, that has had a very large growth spurt in the last year. And I will say, even as someone, you know, that knows better to comment or be hands off. I mean, those kids can put away a lot of food, you know, (laughs) like what can seemingly seem uh, alarming. And on the flip side, you know, you can have a school age kid when maybe they're not growing very quickly, where they can eat an alarmingly small amount of food for a lot of meals. Um, But what I love is the division of responsibility. They can live on air. They can. I think they do sometimes. But but I felt like the division of responsibility really is what frees you from those mealtime battles because you, when you realize, you know, my job is to just, you know, do the what are we going to eat, where are we going to eat, when are we going to eat, and then that's it. Because Mm -hmm. the battles generally come where you try to step on, when people are stepping on each other's toes, as I say, um, Mm -hmm. where, you know, the child's trying to decide where and and what we're going to eat or when we're going to eat. And you're trying to control how much and of what they're going to eat. 
Mm-hmm. So when you just right. hands off, <clears throat> then you can just say, you know, when to me, it was the mindset shift, like the meal is intended for me to for you to know that there's food available at a, you know, you're in a few, food secure place and it's here. You have plenty of food to grow as you Very need. Very good point. But mm-hmm. the real, the real, where I'm coming, my motivation for being here is really this to enjoy some time with you. Yep. Exactly. And therein lies the benefit of the family meal mm-hmm. is the pa- the child's having reliable access to the parent where they can get the parent's undivided attention. And it is, you know, something that the family can count on that there are these times that they're going to come together in a positive way. And, you know, everything just flows from that. I love it. Well, thank you so much, Ellen. This has been absolutely wonderful. Uh, I very much enjoyed having you here. So uh, for anybody that's uh, interested in learning more, this resonated. They said, I think this is exactly what my family needs. What resources do you suggest for them? Well, I would... Uh, Besides my podcast. They, <laughs> uh, yeah, in addition to your podcast, that's right. Um, um, to do a search on the web for Ellen Satter um, and see what comes up. And it's likely to take you to the Ellen Satter Institute. It's likely to take you to my books. Um, it's the ESI has a website that just has oodles of resources in it. Um, I think doing a quick and dirty search is just going to get the job done. Amazing. Thanks so much. Uh You're welcome. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Feeding the Family. Uh, If you're enjoying these episodes, go ahead and hit that subscribe button so you never miss one. And we'll see you next week. 